<laughs> so you're actually in your bathroom? Yeah, I'm actually in my bathroom. Practicing <laughs> what you preach. Welcome back, listeners, to another edition of Prescription Sound with me, Drew Duglin. Today, we are reaching new highs on the show as we go full potty mouth. That's right. We are talking all about the bladder and urination. Putting the endless cheap jokes aside, this is a fascinating science that could help a significant portion of society affected by bladder issues. In the work from home studio today is neuroscientist Kara Marshall, a postdoctoral researcher in the lab of Ardem Pataputian at Scripps Research. So let's join Kara as she describes her early interest in touch sensation, which believe it or not, came from studying flight control in bats. My graduate work was actually studying touch receptors. So that is, uh, you know, receptors in the skin that detect force. And actually, it was a really fun graduate experience because I, I used mice, which are a common model system, to understand how touch receptor function is driven by their structure. Mm. But then I also did some work on bats. Because bats, I don't know if you are aware, their wings are just modified hands. So if you think about flight, it's sort of like they're, they're gripping the air. And, you know, just even small modifications to how they curve their wings or the angle of attack of their wings can change, you know, their flight path. And so in grad school, I had this really fun side project defining the different touch receptors in a bat's wing skin and how this might contribute to flight control. That really got me interested in mechanosensation, which is the conversion of force into a neural signal. And that's, of course, how you sense touch, but it's also how you sense a number of other things, including hearing and then, you know, all sorts of processes that go on inside of your body. So my transition from graduate school to the Pataputian lab was actually kind of going from the outside in. So now I really want to understand internal sensations, so how all the different forces in your body actually affect different aspects of your physiology. And then within investigating touch and sensation, what is it that the Pataputian lab does in general? I believe uh, you guys work on a number of different things. Right. So several years ago, we had discovered these specific proteins that detect force. And these are called piezo channels. And there's two of them, piezo 1 and 2. And it turns out that these, these proteins are really critical in a number of different tissues for all different kinds of mechanosensing. So um, PSO2 is the ion channel that's in sensory neurons. And when I say channel, I mean it literally opens a hole in the membrane, and that's how your neurons communicate. Mm. And it does this when it's exposed to force. So like in a touch neuron, for instance, if your skin gets poked, it actually sort of pulls this channel open, and that's like the on switch that initiates signaling in the neurons. So these proteins end up being super important. The Pataputian lab before I was here discovered them and then also figured out that it's the prime mediator of touch sensation as well as proprioception. So that's, you know, knowing where your limbs are in space. So these proteins ended up being really cool keys to understand a lot of different processes. Just by figuring out where they are in the body, we have a good idea that mechanical force plays some sort of role. And so we've really been following through piezo expression and all over the body to see kind of what different processes these proteins might be involved in. It's amazing to think just a mechanical sensation or a pressure can then activate a neuron <laughs> and, right. and fire the nerves. Right. I think people are familiar with this from the aspect of chemical sensation, right? Like, it kind of makes sense to everyone, like, oh, well, if you expose a cell to a chemical, you get an effect. But I think that's why mechanosensation has been so understudied. Is that's an active process, too, and there are sensors that are specific for that. But we just didn't know what they were until mm -hmm. 2010. 
And so there's still plenty to understand about the nervous system and how mechanical force impacts other tissues. But it seems like piezos remarkably have been used over and over again to do this, this function. Yeah, it's such an exciting area. And I'm curious, how did you ever then get involved in a project that was going to be studying bladder function and urination? Yeah, well, part of it seems obvious because when you think about the things in your body that are moving or expanding all the time, the bladder is one of them. So, you know, your heart is an obvious mechanical input, right, because it beats every second. And so we had previously discovered that piezo-ion channels are important for blood pressure sensing. So they sit in your aortic arch and in your carotid body area, and they actually detect with every heartbeat what the pressure is. And this is an incredibly important function to control your blood pressure, and it's called the barrow reflex. And so we had already looked into a couple internal processes like this. Another function that uh, we had studied piezos in is lung stretch. So obviously with each breath, your lung expands greatly. So it sort of was a natural progression. Well, what, what else in the body relies on stretch sensing? And bladder sensation is actually pretty unique. So all of these other systems in your body, they rely on both chemical sensing and mechanical sensing. So for instance, you know, breathing, your lungs detect how like how big your breath inhalation is. But you're also detecting how much oxygenation is in your blood all the time. These are chemoreceptors that do this. And that also sets your heart rate and your breathing rate. So most systems in your body rely on both. And in fact, the gastrointestinal tract is a great example. I think we all know that the only way you can digest anything is because your GI tract is always churning and mixing and squeezing. And this is how you get food through and this is how you digest food. But at the same time, you also have these chemical sensors in your GI tract that tell you if you have the right complement of nutrients, for example. So then urination is pretty special because it really doesn't rely on any chemical cues. It's purely mechanical. So the way it works is, you know, once your bladder is full, you kind of get this sensation that it's filling up and you might need to actually plan ahead to find a bathroom. And then all of the reflexes that allow you to actually urinate are driven by mechanical input. So it's actually for us who study mechanical sensation, it's kind of the perfect system because we don't have to worry about sort of these complicated chemical cues. But I will say it's totally ignored and understudied. I mean, there are people who study bladder function and there have been classical studies that defined these mechanical reflexes. But as neuroscientists, I think we forget about it a lot, right? Because it's really, it's not as cool as, say, like learning a memory or, you know, all these things that neuroscientists like to study. But it's absolutely essential. <laughs> like if you can't pee, you, you can't live, you know? <laughs> so, so there's, I think there's a lot of value in studying just the basics of like, how does your body work? One of my favorite stories to tell, actually, about why peeing is so important is the story of Tycho Brahe. He's a planetary scientist. Have you heard his name before? No, I haven't. So he was friends with Johann Kepler and, uh, you know, contributed really important work to understanding planetary movement. But the story goes, he was at a banquet uh, with friends. He was, he was not that old, I think in his 40s or 50s. But he was at a banquet with friends. He thought it was unbecoming or rude to get up to go to the bathroom, even though he'd been drinking all day. It just, you know, he didn't want to get up to go to the bathroom, so he just held it. And he got home, and then he couldn't pee anymore. It seems that maybe his bladder burst, and he actually died Whoa. just 10 days later because he held, his, he held his urine too long. Wow. 
And so we lost a great scientific mind because he didn't go to the bathroom. So this is a, this We is need a to save scientists tale. everywhere from the same thing. That's fate. right. That's right. I like telling the story of Tico Brahe at talks because then I'm like, you know, you'll never find a more supportive person of your, your need. If you need to get up and go, just do it. If you need to skip my talk to go to the bathroom, right. please. And so with that story, what are some of the issues related to kind of bladder stretch and bladder control mm-hmm. uh, that physicians kind of see in the clinic? Because I believe you've interacted with some of them. Yeah, well, I mean, one thing to note is just how common it is for people to have problems with the urinary tract. So, And the reason it's so common is because so many different things can go wrong. It's one really shocking fact I found out when I first embarked on this project is that over 70% of people over 40 will have some sort of lower urinary tract ailment, wow. um, which is crazy because that's most people, you know. <laughs> um, but the problem is that people obviously don't maybe openly share that they have these issues, right? Mm. Um, and it's often something that when people are suffering, they keep it to themselves and maybe don't even seek out medical treatment. But there are a lot of things that can go wrong. So you can have overactive bladder or underactive bladder. Both of those are a problem. So the these are people with overactive bladder who always have this desire to go to the bathroom, always feel like they need to go to the bathroom. Um, and then underactive bladder, if you're not sensing well enough, it can also lead to, you know, long-term issues where you could even get kidney infections, right, if you're not using your bladder mm-hmm. enough. Um, and then, of course, incontinence. That's one that everyone, you know, knows about and wants to avoid, of course. But it is a problem in, um, you know, in older people and also in, you know, women who've experienced childbirth. It can be really traumatic. And again, I think a lot of people, because this isn't something society talks about, they think if they have these little problems, it can really harm their quality of life. But they might not seek treatment, right, because they just feel like they have to hide it or live with it. So I think that the more we know about just sort of the basic fundamentals of how the system works, the better we can inform doctors, you know, maybe they, it could give them better ideas of how to treat it, or maybe it could lead to therapies down the line. With the bladder being so dependent on sensing stretch, Kara and her colleagues embarked on a journey to find out if this pressure sensor piezo was playing a key role. In a brand new study, they have taken an initial curiosity in human patients and translated it into fundamental discoveries on bladder control. To be honest, I wasn't working really intently on this project until we had this conversation with Dr. Alex Chesler, who's at the NIH. And he is he was our collaborator on this story, along with Karsten Bonneman. And the reason he got us really interested in this was he came to Scripps to give a seminar, and he has characterized patients who lack functional piezo 2 hmm. And so one notable effect in these patients is that they are insensitive to most forms of gentle touch. They also have no proprioception, so they don't know where their limbs are in space. And this makes it very difficult to perform functions that we would find fairly easy, like, you know, normal walking for them, they rely on visual cues, but they cannot close their eyes and walk in a straight line because they, they're blind to their body because they have no sense of proprioception. So Alex had done beautiful work with Karsten on finding these patients and sort of defining what deficits they had in their sensory systems. And so um, these are really generous people who gave of their time and have spent hours and hours talking to Alex and his team. And one of the things Alex told us is that they have no sense of bladder filling. Wow. So unlike most of us who, you know, we can kind of tell if we're going to need to go to the bathroom soon, you can sort of plan ahead, right? Um, they have no sense of this. So what happens is they end up being put on a schedule usually. And many of these patients were, were actually children 
So this is a, a coping mechanism that their parents mm-hmm. kind of figured out for them. Because regardless of how much they drank, they never felt the need to go to the bathroom until it was too late. So they could feel it right when it was, you know, urgent. And then that would usually result in an accident. So they were able to compensate for this by just saying, okay, you know, you won't feel that that you need to, but just go to the bathroom twice a day. But we found this this was a pretty remarkable deficit. And to be able to just actually talk to people and then say, like, I've never felt like I needed to go to the bathroom is pretty remarkable. So that was a big clue, and that got us interested in figuring out the mechanism by using animal models. And so, yeah, it was that conversation where we told him, hey, we're, we're interested in figuring out how this works using genetics and animal models, and we would love to combine this with the stories from the patients. And, you know, we think that would make a great story. And Alex and Carson, to their credit, they're just wonderful collaborators and very open. And so it's been a really great uh, joint effort. So, yeah, the paper actually takes the human clinical data from patients who lack piezo 2 and it combines it with my studies in mice where I took out piezo 2 selectively in neurons versus just the bladder itself. Mm. And so what we found is that piezo 2 this mechanosensor, is really important in both tissues. So it functions in sensory neurons to detect bladder stretch, but it's also expressed in the inner lining of the bladder. There's these specialized cells that when they you know, when the bladder is stretched, they also send signals saying that the bladder is full, essentially. Yeah, it was a really exciting project because anytime you can define something in mice, it's actually much more interesting and exciting if you have confirmation that it functions the same way in humans. Right. So it's kind of like a, like a double system with it being activated in the bladder and then in the neurons that go away from the bladder to the brain. Exactly. Exactly. It's a two-part sensory system. And this had been proposed. I mean, there were people who said, you know, these specialized bladder cells are actually important for mechanical signaling. And then, of course, we also knew that there were mechanosensory neurons in the bladder. Um, but this is the first time we've been able to pin down that mechanosensing is important in both parts of this signaling system. What we don't know is how one communicates to the other. Oh, so we don't actually know how they're connected yet. So that could be something we figure out in the future. Does it seem to be activated and and just sense when people need to go to the bathroom, or does it actually help control the act of urinating itself? Oh, that's a great question. It seems that it's actually both. So we know from talking to the humans that it's involved in your own conscious sensation of filling, right? Like when you know you will need to go to the bathroom. Um, But I know from my mechanistic studies in mice that it also is critical for actual efficient urination too. Because these mechanical cues, you know, they're also signaling to the nervous system locally without even bothering to tell your brain you have reflexes that help you go to the bathroom. So, for instance, your bladder has to squeeze, right? You don't consciously tell your bladder to squeeze. You only control your urethra. So you can relax your urethra, but if your bladder doesn't squeeze at the same time, nothing will come out. And vice versa, if you squeeze your bladder but your urethra doesn't relax, nothing will come out. So you have these really complicated you know, reflex circuits that actually coordinate these two muscle groups. And all of that seems to be driven by mechanical inputs as well. Wow. It's such an amazing network. (laughs) Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, it's kind of neat that the system works that way, right? You control one element of the muscle, your body controls the other, and like they kind of have to communicate back and forth. Um, It's a neat system, actually. And then with going to the bathroom, I mean, there is such a 
kind of higher order component to it where we can um, delay going. And do you know or do you have any theories on whether this kind of continuous delaying could cause long-term changes in the sensor or cause it to be remodeled in some way? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we know that just even in normal people, if you if you always delay going to the bathroom, it's not, it's not good for you, right? It can lead to kidney infections and all sorts of problems. So longer-term consequences, you know, we're not entirely sure what they'll be for the patients. Um, again, as I mentioned, a lot of them are actually younger. And so I would love to figure out, you know, what goes on. We have the ability using mice to kind of like fast forward, right? Because mice live a maximum of two years. So I'd love to use those mice to kind of understand what other problems they might face. For instance, you know, I think they might get some remodeling of the bladder. I already had found that, but maybe this leads to a lot, like longer term kidney issues, for instance. And this is something we don't know yet, but I would love to look into. Do you think the bladder issues you're seeing in people are specific to individuals who have just those distinct changes in the sensor? Or do you think there might be um, age-related changes in this for like the wider population? And could that be studied? Yeah, there certainly could be. Another thing that we haven't studied yet is the role of piezo-1. So this is all about piezo-2 and how it's really critical for bladder function. But we also know that the bladder itself expresses piezo-1, and its role right now is totally undefined. We also know that there's a huge population of people who have gain-of-function mutations in piezo-1. So these, this means that the channel just stays open longer mm-hmm. to have sort of more excitation through this channel. And so who knows, like maybe this could drive things like overactive bladder. And then with you saying it laying the groundwork for potential interventions in the future, I mean, do we know of any chemical compounds that can kind of activate or interfere with this channel? Oh, I, I so wish. It's such a good <laughs> question. Unfortunately, it's been really hard to find chemical mediators of these channels. So actually, a few years ago, the Patapuchian lab screened 3.1 million small molecule compounds and they found one that, that activates piezo-1, not piezo-2. So finding, you know, activators or inhibitors of these channels is going to be quite the chore. But if we can do it, yeah, I mean, you can imagine it could have huge consequences for all sorts of different processes. You know, bladder is one of them. Bladder is a great, it's actually a great place to look or, or try different therapies because you can, you know, you can do something in the periphery, right? It's if you're talking about problems in the brain or the nervous system, it's pretty hard to make changes there. But in the bladder, you know, it's pretty easy to access. So, yeah, I think there's definitely opportunity there yeah. to develop new therapies. Um, unfortunately, pharmacologically, we don't have any good tools right now. So I hope I hope we can find some in the future. I'm guessing that things like alcohol and, and caffeine and, and other drugs that have like a diuretic effect, I assume they work in other places that wouldn't be... Um, related to kind of piezo-2? All of those chemical signaling cascades are important for a number of things, like how much urine you actually produce. And so, of course, the more urine you have, the more you need to go to the bathroom. Mm. And so they work kind of on a different different level for the most part. Um, A lot of things also, I mean, it's important to note, work in your brain. And your brain ultimately controls your peeing. So the bladder itself is really important, but your brain needs permission before you go to the bathroom often. (laughs) Yeah, those kind of work on a different level. You know, it's not to say they couldn't affect piezo function. They probably do to some extent, but I don't think we know anything about that yet. Whether it's discussions with neuroscience colleagues at conferences or telling her friends and family what she studies for a living, Kara is used to some mixed reactions. It's 
a little weird, right? If you if you tell people oh, I'm working on peeing, you don't always get like reactions that you would hope for. You don't get like, wow, cool, peeing, you know? <laughs> it's a little bit off the beaten path, I would say. But I will say that when I present it, everyone's really excited and enthusiastic because, you know, it is such a fundamental process that I think people are always, A, a little bit shocked that, you know, oh, we haven't figured this out yet, that B, really excited to see a story that's just so clear because, you know, in so so many areas in neuroscience, we're really working out details, right? If you think about something like vision, we know a lot about how vision works. So vision researchers have come so far to where they can, you know, they can make retinas now and stuff, you know, at least computationally. And so to have something sort of so simple, right, like how do you initiate, you know, peeing and be able to answer it, I think is exciting for people. It's just a clear-cut story. And they've They've been very, like, welcoming. All the urologists, I think, are very excited. <laughs> I've spoken at some urology meetings. Um, and th- those are, like, my people. They really get it, right? <laughs> and then at somatosensory sensory meetings, uh, neuroscientists have, I think, been really, really interested. And, you know, I think part of that is having this human component in there and being able to say, like, hey, we talked to people <laughs> and we're able to figure this out. The other hilarious thing that happens with this is people, because so many people do suffer from issues, Right. With this, I think when I tell them this is what I study, they feel like very free to share with me about all of their strange, <laughs> here are my their issues. strange feelings. <laughs> I think people want to talk about it. Frankly, it's something we all do multiple times a day, and yeah. so um, people have been very open about that <laughs> and willing yeah. to chat. Yeah, it's great. I think it's, if it gives people a reason to actually realize that this stuff shouldn't be taboo, then it's it's kind of good. Yeah, yeah, it is good. It is good. That's and like great. I said, with what's also funny about this is that. It's a problem that's more um, apparent to older people because older people are more likely to have issues. And um, I can definitely see an age divide when I talk about it. So Mm. older people are more like, oh, my goodness, you need to figure this out. This is really important. (laughs) And it's because they've likely suffered from something going wrong, you know. Yeah, there's a big, big need there in society. Yeah, Yeah, don't take pain for granted. Like, I always tell people, if it's going right, if you're not thinking about it, then you're very lucky, and that's great. <laughs> that's where you want to be, because um, life gets really annoying, I guess, when you have to think about it all the time. Yeah, no so. one cares about something when it works fine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so when you're not not taking peeing for granted uh, in the lab, <laughs> what else do you enjoy doing? What are some of your other hobbies and passions? You know, something I started recently that I found really fun is improv comedy. Oh, um, no way. Yeah, so I took some classes through... National Comedy Theater, and I usually started it because I thought it would be a really good way to practice communicating. You know, like scientific communication is so important, and improv is really kind of scary because you get on the stage with nothing nothing written down. You don't know what you're going to have to say. Um, you just make it up as you go along, and <laughs> I think it yeah. you know, puts you on the spot, but it's really great practice for communication, um, and it's just a good deal of fun. I mean, it's a bunch of people were really quite silly together in public. And so, yeah, I found that to be a good time. I took a few classes, and then they asked me to join one of their house teams. And unfortunately, we only got to do a couple shows before COVID hit, and the theater got shut down. Mm. But, you know, maybe I'll get back to that at some point. Well, that's great. Yeah, it really helps with communication, I imagine. And it must just make you more confident day-to-day in life as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the great things that it teaches you is this concept in improv is, called yes and right if someone gives Mm -hmm. you something you say yes and then you add to it and that's the basis for 
kind of good sketch comedy, but it's also the basis for good conversation, you know? <laughs> and so uh, I think that these lessons can be applied in a lot of different areas. Same thing for scientific talk. People can ask you some really oddball questions, but I think getting to kind of the core of what people are asking and then building on it is usually how fun scientific discussions evolve. You also learn in improv just to not take things too seriously, I think, because you might say some stupid things, but you learn to just sort of pick up and move on with it, right? And I think that's also a good life lesson. Just kind of uh, roll with the punches and adapt. and uh... Exactly, yeah. All right, well, I guess that brings me to my final roundup question, which if you could give somebody your one piece of golden wisdom or advice uh, in any area of life, uh, what do you think it would be and why? Oh, man, so this is a pretty broad question. I would say in science, just because that's what I'm thinking about right now, the most important lesson I've learned is to just follow your curiosity. You know, sometimes you can get really pinned down by an idea, and you can say, well, I have to follow this idea to the end. But all of my most fun projects in science have actually been following the little weird side result, right? Often following this kind of strange thing that you weren't expecting and going on this totally alternate route that takes you to an interesting place. And so I think in science, one of the best things you can do is just, you know, follow the data where it leads and um, follow your own curiosity. I think that usually leads to a happy science life. I know, and I feel like that mention of curiosity, I think, is goes far beyond science and just understanding the way the world works. Oh. And- yeah, I totally. feel like you can just extend that to life in general. Yeah, absolutely. I want that for everyone. I think it's really important. And I think the more open and curious you are with other people, uh, or the better off you will be. Well, there you have it. Stay curious, my friends. Another fun episode today. And for something so basic to human life, we have so much more scientific exploration to do. A huge thank you to Kara for sharing her work and her story, which we will link to some more in the show notes. And if you're a newbie to the show, please go ahead and subscribe, leave a review, and engage with Scripps Research on social media. So until next time, thank you all for listening, stay healthy, and don't take peeing for granted. Goodbye. <laughs>